Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to join, now, join me now in taking your copy of God's Word. As we were reminding ourselves the past several weeks, as we take our copy of God's Word, it's the source and storehouse of all true and saving knowledge of the triune God. So this isn't just a book. This is, this is about our God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how He loves us, how He saves us. With that in mind, we turn together to our passage this morning. Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. So we'll turn together to Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. And as we come to our reading, we're actually going to start back in chapter 4 with one verse to help give us context. Chapter 5, we are well into the narrative of the growth and the growing pains of the early church. But the issues they have faced so far have come from, from the outside, within the church, that early church where at this point we believe there's probably over 10,000 people uh, in that church, things are going well. Then the church, things are going well. All the troubles are coming from the outside, from the religious leaders, from the persecution outside. But it all changes with our passage this morning. Trouble has now come, it has now started to arise from within the church. That honeymoon phase is now coming to an end. As we'll see, there's a parallel to the Garden of Eden. That wherever there is something good of God, Satan will make his way into it. Satan has now made his way into the church. He's now causing division and trouble, and he's doing so with those who are involved in the church. Just like the garden, Satan has made his way into the goodness of God's church. We'll see that this morning in our passage. Let me pray for our time together as we come for God's word. Lord, we pray to open our hearts and minds this morning. We may both hear your word and believe it, believe its truth. That we will receive and rest upon Christ as he's offered to us here in this, this part of your holy word. We do this, Lord. We, we, or we, we do this, we pray this, we ask this in the name of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, whom all the word is about. Lord, who we are always pointed to. Amen. So Acts 5, we'll actually begin back with verse 36, and we'll read through chapter 5, verse 11. So let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. Chapter 4, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself a part of proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of proceeds and land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much. See, she, she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, 
and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When a young man came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Flannery, Flannery O'Connor, that great Southern author, coined this wonderful phrase, the Christ-haunted South. She actually used an article where she said, while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. Now listen to that again. While the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. That's something worth thinking about. That's a profound insight. It doesn't come from somebody who's outside our culture. That's not, it doesn't come from a Yankee. I didn't mean to look at you first just while I said that, so that was a mistake. Um, it didn't come from Yankees. It came from a Southerner. Flannery O'Connor was from Georgia. She's in the Deep South. And she offers this unvarnished opinion of what it can mean to be Southern. Hardly Christ-centered. Most certainly christ Haunted. It's a blistering diagnosis, diagnosis, diagnosis. Sorry, by one of our own of the Southern lifestyle versus true Christian faith. Is the South really a bastion of, of, of faithful Christianity? Is it really the Bible Belt, or is it a place where Christianity is, is played at, but not always fully accepted in mind and heart? Do we like the morality of Christianity? We don't like the commitment of Christianity. We like to be good Christians and act that way, but have we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? As we all know, Christianity is very much a part of the fabric of the South. We are Christ-haunted. We think of our context here just at Bethel. We can turn in almost every direction, every point of the compass, and we know there's a church within, uh, within throwing distance of us. Chances are that for many of you, as you made your way here this morning, you passed by at least one or two or a number of churches, or you came close to a number of other churches. We live in a place where Christian morals are, are still accepted and even celebrated. We very much live in a Christ-haunted place. But are we a Christ-centered people? Are we just playing at the game of Christianity? We just want to be good Southerners. We have our good Southern morals and manners that, that are partly derived from Christianity, but are, do we have, rather, do we have an actual faith that changes everything and dictates everything we do? Are we Christ-haunted or are we Christ-centered? We're all good Southerners here. We're inclined to do the right Christian moral thing. But are we doing it for the right reason? Who is it that shapes your life? Southern culture or Jesus? Who has the most say in your faith and life? Is it Jesus? We see that this morning at play in our passage here. Luke uses the example of Joseph, better known as Barnabas, to help us understand the severity of the situation. 
We have seen the church has its priorities and order. As the family of God here on earth, they are committed to taking care of each other's needs. This care and commitment goes so far as they're willing to sell their houses and land when the need arises. They believe in Jesus. They were committed to him when they love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love their neighbor as themselves so much so that they would sell a house, they would sell land, they would sell property to help each other out. We see them living out what Jesus said in John chapter 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's where we find Barnabas. He loved his neighbor. He loved his fellow church members so much so that he, when he heard of a need in the church, he went and sold one of his, one of his fields and he brought the proceeds to the apostles for them to disperse as needed. Luke gives us the example of Barnabas, of somebody who loves his neighbor as Jesus has called him to. He's following what Jesus said here in John 13. He is believing the summary of the law. Barnabas is Christ-centered. Luke connects these two stories, the conjunction, but. That conjunction tells us that these stories are similar, yet they're also different. In this passage, we read of Ananias. And on face value, his actions mimic those of Barnabas. Yet there is one distinct exception. Ananias chooses to withhold part of proceeds while claiming to contribute it all. Barnabas did it for the right reason. Ananias did it for the wrong reason. One was Christ-centered and given to us as a wonderful example. The other was Christ haunted and given to us as a warning. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is very simple. Barnabas did it for the glory of Christ. Barnabas did it for the glory of Christ and following Jesus, loving Jesus, doing what he has been called to do. Ananias did it for the glory of doing it and being recognized for it. One is Christ-centered. One is Christ haunted. Now, I will admit that this can be a hard story to read through. Because it's a couple in the church who voluntarily sells some property, gives at least some, or probably not most of the money to the church, and what's the result? God strikes them dead. That's the summary of the story, isn't it? That's the Cliff Notes version. And that's uncomfortable, isn't it? It may go against what we think of God or, or what we want to think of God. We may be thinking, my God would never do such a thing. How can, a, how can a loving God strike down a couple who is doing good for the church? I agree with what one pastor said about this passage. He said, if I had been writing the book of Acts, I would not have included this story. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like to read it. Now I imagine we can all sympathize with them. This can be uncomfortable. This can be hard to read. This isn't John 3.16. But it reminds us that the Bible doesn't paint a picture of the world as seen through rose-colored glasses. It tells life as it really is. See, the Bible is real life. It's about real people and real situations. It doesn't pull your punches and showing real sin. So the main emphasis of the story is about sin against the holy God. 
It's about sinning, choosing to sin against the Holy God. It's a story that has echoes from the book of Joshua of Achan at Jericho. And these stories teach us and remind us that God hates sin. And God is serious about sin. We don't often want to think of it that way. But God hates sin. That's part of the story of the cross. It's part of the story of the gospel. God hates sin and he's serious about it. So what we find in our story here is a warning. It's a warning against being Christ-haunted instead of being Christ-centered. It's a warning of living a Christian lifestyle that is bereft of faith. A Christian lifestyle that doesn't have Jesus as its focus, as its center. But even with all that being said, you may, be th- you may still be thinking to yourself, but it was their property. Right? That Maybe they bought it. Maybe they inherited it. It was their property. They were free to do with it what they wanted to. Why is God being so judgmental? Why, why would a loving God be so harsh as to have them die? We find clues in the text that help us understand why things happened the way they did. Read again with me verses 1 and 2. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Surface level, story simple. Ananias and his wife, Sophia, were going to the first ART church in Jerusalem. And uh, they heard some needs in the church. So they decided to, to sell some property, some, some, some land there, and give part of the proceeds to the church. And they wanted to help. Nothing wrong with that, right? It said the verb in there. The verb kept back denotes deception. Within that Greek verb is the understanding of of deception going behind the back of being secretive. So Luke uses this verb to indicate that we believe that Ananias and Sapphira, active in a church, part of early church, had entered into some sort of understanding with the church before the sale took place. They had seen the example of Barnabas, and they said, we, we, we want to do that. Many saw Barnabas get you know, patted on the back enough, and they go, we want to be patted on the back. We, we want our name in, in the bulletin, or our, our, our plaque put up for somewhere in the church. Right? We want that recognition. So it seems that they, they went to the apostles, and they said, Peter, look, years ago, we inherited some land over there just outside the western side of Jerusalem. And we bought some land around it as well. And we're not going to do anything with it. We're, we're settled. We're old. We're, we, you know, we're, not going to, we're not going to do anything with it. So we've been talking to somebody. And we think we could get $100 an acre. Times were different back then. Um, but $100 an acre. And, and we have 10 acres. So, so, I, I, so Peter, we can give to the church $1,000 to help those in need. And that's a great thing to do. I don't think any of us will argue with that. But what did they do? Peter, we're going to give y'all $1,000. But when the day came, maybe it's handed over 500s or 600 or 700. They kept back some of what they promised. They lied. They, they, they reneged on what they agreed to. And maybe it's when, when they got the check that they looked at it and said, man, that, that's a lot of money. 
smart thing would be if we, if we took some of that money and we invested it. We're getting older. We need to put some of this money away to take care of ourselves. We are really been wanting to go on vacation. Haven't been able to get away for a while. Let's take some of that money and let's go on vacation. Let's, let's buy that condo over in Caesarea. For whatever reason, they agreed to give this much to the church. When they got it in, they gave less. They sinned. They lied. They went back on the agreement they had made. They sinned. Good action, wrong motive. They're Christ-haunted. They're not Christ-centered. It was their glory and comfort that came above Christ and His glory. It was what they wanted that came above the word and agreement they had entered into. Active members of the church, but just Christ wanted. Peter, through divine wisdom, quickly puts his finger on the heart of the problem, like in verses 3 and 4. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of proceeds and land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter immediately understands what happened. Satan has made his way into the church. And he's causing trouble. Just like in the garden, Satan is now causing doubt over God's will and goodness. Did God really mean that we have to take our agreements and our vows seriously? Does God really want you to tell the truth all the time? It's okay. Little white lie here and there doesn't really hurt anybody. See, Satan has Ananias and Sapphira doubting God's will and goodness. So Ananias gets quite a scolding from Peter, doesn't he? He tells him, look, nobody made you sell this land. You voluntarily sold this land. And, and, and you came to us, Ananias. You, you came to us, you made us agreements. This was your idea. We didn't force you. This is what you wanted to do. But at the end of the day, you lied. And, and notice what Peter says about the severity of the lie. You've not lied to man, but to God. Matter of fact, he, sa- he says earlier, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Twice. Twice he gets to the heart of it. You have lied against God. Now, does that apply only to that situation? No. It applies to every sin ever committed. Every sin we commit is a sin against God. Think about what we teach the children in their children's catechism. What is sin? It's disobedience to God's law. From an early age, we're teaching them. And when you sin, you're sinning against God and law he's given Short Catechism says sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. See, no matter how we cut it, every sin is against God. Every sin we have ever committed, every sin we may be committing right now, every sin we will ever commit will ultimately be against God. We do sin against each other. And we have been sinned against. But every sin is against God. That's what makes sin so heinous. Is because we choose to disobey the holy God who fearfully and wonderfully made us. 
We choose to sin against the one who has redeemed us. We choose to sin against the one who guides us. We we choose to sin against the one who so loves us that he gave his only son for us. We choose to sin against the one who, while we were still his enemies, he gave Christ Jesus for us. The, The heinous nature of sin is that we choose to sin against God. No matter what the sin is, our human agents involved, we are sinning against God. And that's the issue here. But it's only a little white lie, isn't it? Ananias and Sapphira still gave money to the church for good. It's only a little white lie. Little white lies don't hurt anybody. It's past week doing Camp Joy up, up at Camp Gravit. And Camp Gravit has these great coffee mugs. Beautiful green color with this great Gravit symbol on there. And so I would get a coffee mug every morning. They had them all out. We'd get coffee. And Friday as I was packing up, I looked at that mug and I said, I want to take that home. This is a great coffee mug. Now, i got plenty of coffee mugs at home. But I really like this coffee mug. I'm going to take it home. Then I started thinking, but that's stealing, isn't it? Then I started telling myself, is it really stealing? I mean, they have plenty of coffee mugs. Camp Joy's paid a lot of money to be here this week. They won't miss this coffee mug, and I will really enjoy it at home. Yeah, I'm telling you, I sat in my room for five minutes contemplating stealing a coffee mug. I was also very tired that morning. There was a lot going on. Nobody would miss it. Would God really care if I took one coffee mug from a Christian conference center? Then there's the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. I didn't pay for it. It wasn't mine. They didn't give it to me. It just occurred to me I probably could have asked them they would have given it to me, but that's too late now. What would have mattered for Camp Gravit to have lost one coffee mug? Short Catechism teaches us all are all sins equally evil? In the eyes of God, some sins in themselves are more evil than others. Some are more evil because of the harm that results from them. Little white lies. But then the Catechism says, what does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's anger and curse, both in this life and in life to come. Was their lie as bad as murder? They, they just didn't go all the way through their agreement. They didn't walk into church one Sunday and, and, and kill everybody, right? But it's still a sin. They lied against the holy God. And it's a sin that deserved God's anger and curse. See, Ananias and Sapphira were just simply christ wanted. They wanted to do the right thing, but they wanted it on their terms and for their good. Christ's glory was not their goal. At the end of this all, their greatest concern wasn't for Christ, for his church, for his people. It was for them. They were just simply Christ-haunted people. And what we learn here is that judgment will come for all those who are Christ-haunted. Now, this sort of death isn't common. God isn't striking people down left and right. But he does so here. And I believe he does so here to show that he takes sin seriously, especially when it makes its way into his people and church. And I think that's something worth us thinking about for a moment. God is serious about us. 
God is serious about his church. And God is serious about us deliberately entering sin into his church. So when we choose to gossip against each other, God hears it. When we choose to slander each other, God knows it. When we made the deliberate choice to bring sin into the church, God knows it. And God is not pleased. And God will not stand for sin to come in and ruin his church. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. But it's something worth us thinking about, isn't it? One of the greatest lies Satan ever told was the, the first lie he ever told. It's a lie we still believe. Did God really say? And Adam and Eve fell for it, didn't they? And think about how that influences how we treat our sin. Most of us are here every Sunday. Most of us have heard the gospel. Most of us have been in Bible studies. We, we know the Bible. But think about what, 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 when it comes to sin, we end up having this conversation with ourselves and we may say, but does God really say he hates sin that much? Does he really do Will God really be mad about this little sin? It's just a little white light. It's just a little sin. I'm not going to murder anybody. I'm not going to do a big sin. Does God really care? And maybe we know enough of the Bible. We say, you know what? I am forgiven. I know I'm forgiven. And I know there's grace. So you know what? I'm off the hook. I've been forgiven. I know grace, so I'm going to sin away. Now to be sure, if you're a Christian, you are indeed forgiven. And it is God's grace that reigns in your life. But it's precisely because of that, that we do our best to avoid sin. We don't take grace as liberty for us to sin. We take grace as liberty for us to not sin. Because we can think of it this way. How can you and I say that we know the precious crucified Savior and yet we still choose sin over Him? How can we look at the cross and say, "Mm, I prefer sin? How can we read the accounts of Jesus on the cross, crying out to His Father, being mocked, being humiliated, and with His last breath looking to His Father in heaven and saying, it is finished, we go... That's a great story. Bring on the sin. How can we proclaim faith in a love so great that he would die for us, yet we refuse to love him enough to walk with him? Let me answer this as bluntly as possible. We cannot. We cannot know the precious Savior and love our sin more than him. We cannot know the path he walked for our salvation and we choose to walk in the opposite direction. That is what it means to be Christ-haunted. Christ-haunted means you claim the faith, but you want nothing much to do with Jesus. Just like Ananias and Sapphira did. And we see what Satan does with a life like that. If you habitually choose sin instead of Christ. If you habitually do what you know is sinful without an ounce of repentance, it may very well stand that you are not Christ-centered. You are just Christ-haunted. 
and you're Christ haunted enough to make the effort to do the right Southern ARP thing and, and, and be here on Sundays to do other Christianly things during the week. But we're told one day we will all have to stand before a holy God and answer to how we have chosen to live. And we've lived Christ haunted, our Christ centered. Luke ends this story by telling us that when all this happened to Ananias and Sapphira, it caused great fear to come upon the church. And that's not fear of like, you know, a ruler on your knuckles, a discipline sort of thing. It's the fear of the reverence and respect of the Lord. It's a healthy fear of knowing and loving God. And that's the only result for a Christian here. We should shudder at the thought of sinning against God. We should weep at the temptation for us to go against the one who loves us so much. We should tremble at the prospect that we would walk with Satan instead of walking with Jesus. We should have this fear that comes from being Christ-centered instead of Christ-haunted. So what do we do? We look to Jesus. The answer is always Jesus, isn't it? But if you're in fear of being more Christ-haunted and Christ-centered, then look to Jesus. And go hold on to the one who has been holding on to you. Go love the one who has first loved you. Follow the shepherd, who is the good shepherd of Psalm 23, who will walk in front of you. And yes, you may walk through the valley of shadow of death, but he will lead you beside still waters. He will lay you down in that green grass. His rod and his staff, they will comfort you. There's a fine line between being Christ-haunted and Christ-centered. And that fine line is Jesus Christ. We all have a decision to make. Do we just want to live in the in a shadow of what Christianity is so we'll have the respect of Winsboro so people won't think ill of us do we just want to be Christ haunted or do we want to turn to Jesus and give ourselves fully over to him that we are so Christ centered that everything in our life is always for him that everything we do is for the good and glory of Jesus Christ. Christ haunted or Christ centered. Let's pray together.